a world filled with fast-paced living and constant demands on the aging body, it's easy to forget some of the simplest yet most essential elements of our well-being, hydration and nutrients. As you know, when I'm not in the studio recording a podcast or in the gym or out in the scrub hunting, putting rounds downrange, I'm somewhere in the world on a security gig, putting in the hard yards, ending up on TikTok. So legends that get some, keep me advancing forward, Jocko Fuel Supplements. More specifically, I've been smashing the Jocko Hydrate Sachets, which helps me replenish my electrolytes and other critical vitamins while boosting energy and supporting recovery. Also, just like my kids, my appetite for veggies goes as far as hot chips from the kernel. However, every morning I'll mix a scoop of Jocko Greens, Jocko Creatine into water, which helps me supplement my lack of and delivers all the nutrients for better gut health, immune support, cognitive function, and physical performance. And not to mention, tastes bloody good. So head over to www.getsome.com.au and use the code Zero Limits all in caps for a discount. I'll leave you with this for the day. Hard work, clean fuel, stronger, faster, smarter, better. Let's go. You're listening to a Zero Limits podcast brought to you by Ironled Cartel for all your fitness and streetwear apparel and health supplements. Hosted by Australian veterans, Matt and Shane, we're here to give you the motivation for you to complete any goal you set your mind to. On these podcasts, we're going to be speaking to high charging people with the Zero Limit mindset that never say no. Let's go. All right, listeners, on today's Zero Limits podcast, we have um, another A10 pilot except uh, this A10 pilot is uh, female and our first uh, female guest. However, again, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. Um, Shane, again, is too busy and too cool for us uh, Zero Limits podcast, so I've got to ring in. Um, <laughs> he can introduce himself, and uh, let's just start off. He is a veteran. Um, uh, he was in the Australian uh, Air Force, so welcome, mate. G'day, I'm Tian, um, 207 pilot course in the Royal Australian Air Force and I uh, joined in 2003, enlisted in 2003 and went through the academy. Yeah, so yeah, sick, yeah, veteran man. like yourself, mate. Yeah, man, I'm pumped to have you here because we've known a long, uh, you know, each other a long time as well and uh, feel that, you know, feel Shane's boots. Yeah, which is, you know, <laughs> big boots big, to fill, but I'll give it a red hot crack. Big boots to fill because Shane's a special human being. <laughs> Don't we know it? Yeah. <laughs> special enough, I think he was in special ed. Oh, it wouldn't wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> That's but, uh, special. In inverted commas, special. <laughs> yeah. Again, mate, back to our guest. We've got uh, Kim Campbell. Uh, she was a colonel in the US uh, Air Force and was an ATAM pilot. And um, mm. one of the stories we do want to touch on with her is um, – uh, she copped a bit of anti-air uh, in the invasion of Baghdad and limped uh, A-10 back to base just. And, you know, I think her story is, you know, she was, you know, thinking about ejecting over over Baghdad, which would not have been a no. ideal situation. <laughs> it's not ideal. Punch <laughs> out or uh, baby back home, but she baby back home apparently. So yeah. Uh, yeah. really keen to hear about exactly, that. Exactly, man. So let's uh, let's get into it. Tien, uh, on today's Zero Limits podcast, we have uh, another A10 pilot. We just interviewed one the other day, which the episode just dropped, and it was uh, amazing. Today, we've got on uh, our first uh, female pilot, uh, Kim Campbell, and she's got an incredible story about her military career, especially in uh, the early days of Baghdad, which is uh, you know one of those times it was mm. just incredible. So uh, welcome to the show, Kim. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. No, appreciate it. And uh, again, appreciate you uh, giving your time. And I know you're a busy person these days, speaking around and doing your keynote uh, talking and stuff. First off, um, 
can you just give us a rundown on your life, your early days? I graduated from the Air Force Academy in 1997 and uh, spent a few years at school uh, in the United Kingdom before going off to pilot training. But I've really been flying A-10s my entire career. I started uh, flying A-10s in 2001. Uh, I've had numerous assignments flying A-10s and also leadership positions in the Air Force, uh, ranging from squadron commander to group commander. Of course, those few stints on staff tours at the Pentagon, uh, which are no- nobody's favorite. Uh, uh, flying a desk never is. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, but really flying A-10s my entire career until I finished off. Um, just recently, I spent three years at the Air Force Academy, kind of back where it all started for me. Yep. And now uh, teaching cadets uh, how to fly. Yeah, and so that wow. was really fun. I was not in an A-10, a totally different airplane, but still kind of a fun opportunity, kind of come full circle for me. Yeah, right. That's interesting. So um, in regards to joining the Air Force, did you have your family, did it have any background, your father or? My, my dad had been in the Air Force, but he was only in for five years. And so I never really spent time as an Air Force brat. <laughs> um, it was just, um, for me, um, very early in my life, let's see, fifth grade, I don't know, roughly 12, uh, I watched the space shuttle, uh, challenger accident and, and it, maybe it's ironic, but I, for me, it was about watching these astronauts doing something that they believed in something that they believed in so much that they were willing to give their lives for. And so I, for whatever reason, I really connected with that even in fifth grade and, talked to my parents a little bit and they said, well, if you want to be an astronaut, most are pilots. And so I kind of just had this plan and I was going to go to the Air Force Academy. I was going to become a fighter pilot and then ideally go off and be an astronaut. Yeah, right. So obviously you didn't, be, you didn't become an astronaut, which is uh, <laughs> first pick. No, and uh, yeah, I'm okay with that now. You know, it's, <laughs> it's funny, you set, you set these goals and dreams for yourself when you're young and uh, you know, life changes, priorities change, uh, you yeah. know, I'm married and got two young kids now. And so, uh, you know, priorities just change over time. Yeah, no, and I never definitely. wanted to give up flying the A-10 because for me, the A-10 was just, I don't know. I just, I connected with that more than anything and connected to the mission of flying the A-10. Yeah. Right. So how did, how did you develop the passion for the A-10, not just to be, you know, an F-15 pilot, et cetera, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I think at pilot training, I realized that while the uh, air-to-air dogfighting stuff was was cool and and that's what you see in the movies, I really found that my passion was flying low. I loved all, <laughs> all our low-level missions, and then once I started talking to other pilots about what they do, um, I just there was something about being able to support troops on the ground. That to me was just a very um, it was a mission that I could connect with. And, um, and so I looked for aircraft where I could, where I could do that. And so the A-10 is by far the best aircraft of the air force inventory. Yes. I'm, t- <laughs> I'm totally biased. I know, uh, but it is really the best close air support platform and it has been for a very long time. So it, has it seemed for- like, like a logical approach. It has for a long time. It's almost coming up on five decades of service for the Warthog. Um, what do you see for the future yeah, of it? I mean, they've got an indefinite retirement date on it, haven't they just said? So, there, you know, there's lots of discussion and it changes with every administration, but mm. I think it will probably like, I don't know, likely see the end of its lifespan here in the next, I don't know, 10 to 15 years. Yeah, right. um, okay. it, it is getting old. I mean, we've, we didn't know some of the things we were doing to the airplane in the early days. So yeah. we, a lot of the technology has changed. And so, you know, through the time of flying and OIF and OEF, we uh, 
for Iraqi freedom and enduring freedom. I mean, it was just, we would over G those airplanes all the mm. time and not know it. And now we have the technology that tells on us when we do it. So yeah, right. um, what's yeah, over G on an I-10? The, the wings are old. Uh, so for us in an A-10, uh, the, really the max amount of Gs is right around seven uh-huh. uh, G-forces, which is a lot less than an F-16 or an F-15. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, right. Well, I've got no idea what you guys are talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so, let me, I'll give you I'll give you an idea. When you're rolling in towards the target, you're diving at the ground, yeah. pointing at the target. And when you, as soon as you deliver your ordinance, you're going to pull back on the stick to get away from the ground, away from the threat. Well, when you do that, it puts a pretty significant amount of G-forces on the airplane. Yeah. Um, and that gotcha. tends to be where we pull just a little too hard and end up over Ging, which is exceeding what the aircraft is capable of, you know, over time you can bend the wings and things like that. <laughs> None of it's very good. <laughs> yeah. Right. We'll, we'll touch on a little bit of that stuff later. Cause that's, that's interesting to me. Um, let's um, get into how you joined the air force and you know, where did you do it? What year, et cetera. And how was your training? So I uh, decided to go to the air force Academy. Uh, that was a little bit harder than I thought. I mean, it's obviously very competitive to get in. Um, but I, uh, I got rejected from the academy on my first attempt. I just, uh, my, our um, scores, my testing scores were not all that great, apparently. Yeah, right. And so I, uh, I got my rejection letter from the academy uh, and still uh, kept after it because it was really all I wanted to do and uh, eventually got a, a, an acceptance from the academy. But that was after weeks of writing them letters saying that, if hey, if somebody else doesn't take a spot, I want it. Uh, and so I eventually went to the Air Force Academy. I graduated in 1997. Yep. Um, and so that was that was really my path into the Air Force. Why did you fail? Were you not so good at school, or was it just a, you know, like, uh, I guess what that's why I, I joined. So that's why at, that's why I joined the army because I, I wasn't so smart. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't get into the Air Force. <laughs> I did fine in school. I just did not do so well at the standardized testing. Yeah, gotcha. And uh, uh, not enough test, to yeah. be competitive anyway, you know, not enough. I mean, it's just when the academy takes so few people, you know, you get 10,000 applicants a year and only a thousand make it in. I just, I just yeah. didn't make the cut initially and yeah. just kept after it and probably bothered them enough that they were like, all right, let her in already. She's, you know, <laughs> clearly persistent. So yeah. I don't know. I don't know what the background story is, but eventually I I did get my acceptance. Yeah. Well, it turned out okay. I did pretty well at the academy. So I, think they, you know, I feel like that's a common theme. Right. I didn't get in on my first year of trying either. So we're in the same boat on that one, Kim. <laughs> Persistence. <laughs> I think they want to see, you know, focus, dedication and your actual commitment to it. Yeah, and maybe right. that's part of the process. Right. Yeah. You know, if you're always successful, I don't know if it says much about, you know, your ability to handle tough situations. And so for those that have, those of us that have had some setbacks and failures along the way. I think it's, you know, it's taught me to work a lot harder and uh, don't take no for an answer if it's something that I want. And, you know, obviously just to work hard and, and also have a good attitude along the way too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So um, in regards to when you uh, become a pilot, you're not obviously designated the A-10 straight up, are you? It's just, you just get in as a general pilot and then you branch off. Can you just touch on that side of things? Right. So when we go to pilot training, initially, we're all in a group. I think it's about 30 of us. And you get racked and stacked, you know, depending upon how well you do, uh, you get your top choice. And so not everybody wants to be a fighter pilot either. I mean, there's plenty of people that prefer to go helicopters or heavy cargo aircraft, but a good number do. And so you really have to kind of go out the gates and and do well. Um, and uh, 
I have to say, I struggled a little bit at pilot training. Believe it or not, I had a problem with air sickness. I was never the kid <laughs> yeah, that right. like, liked to go on the carnival rides and the stuff that spun around. Uh, so I struggled a bit at the beginning, but it was, uh, I could, I could get sick and fly. Yeah. Uh, is it so, something that you became a bit desensitized uh, to it? Because over here in Australia, we've got a spew camp yeah. where people get in like a sort of phone booth sort of thing that just shakes for hours on end and they, you know, do that for a couple of days straight and then they have a little um, spew ride at the end of it. Hopefully yeah, they're right. past. But what's it like over there? Did you just overcome it um, yourself or? I think over time you overcome it. Um, I think for me, it was just getting used to it. And then they have this awesome torture device called the barony chair oh, there we which go. is the chair where you like that spin spins, around yeah. it's it's torture have you taken a ride in that so what's that have you taken a ride in that oh yeah several, oh, okay. uh, several. That's, how, <laughs> that's how i got through uh and got over the air sickness was that terrible chair and it's yeah. like it's just a chair where they can spin you around real fast they make you put your head down and up and it's yeah. just it's <laughs> yeah, for those of us that are not into those rides, it was pretty much torture, but it worked and got me through pilot training. And I did well enough after those kind of initial yeah. uh, struggles that I was able to put myself in a position to choose the, the fighter track yeah. um, to go that route. And then we narrowed down to about eight of us. And then out of that group of eight, uh, we go on to now kind of the fighter track where we're focusing on formation, faster flying, faster airplane and uh, get to the point where we then have to select an airplane. And it's a bit of a dream sheet. You yeah. put down what you want, and then a lot of it is how you perform. And so for me, it was um, there was only one A-10, so I was really hoping to get it. Yeah. Right. How's it announced to you guys? Because over here, we kind of make a night of it, and you know, it's, a, it's almost like a Connect 3 or Connect 4 sort of thing, and it's a bit of a game through the night who's going to get what. How's it revealed to you guys it's- in the U.S. Air Force? It's the same. I mean, it's a bit of a, it's a big night. It's at the, yeah. uh, at the officer's club and we'll all go in and uh, people from all the different classes come in and it's a bit of a, a surprise, right? They're going to, yeah. they put you up on stage. They flash different airplanes. It's kind of like a, a casino where it spins. So it's just a surprise. So they talk about you a bit, tell some stories and then whatever airplane ends up flashing up behind you uh, is it. So I remember turning around and looking to see the A-10. Yeah, right. I, was just, I couldn't wait. I, mean, I was so excited to finally get into flying the airplane. Yeah, right. So at what stage do you get to have your own call sign? Because we know that you guys in the US are really big on your call signs. Is your call sign Killer Chick? Is it? Is that the call sign? <laughs> it is. It is. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. That's so cool. I wasn't sure about that. That's so did, good. Did you just pick that yourself or was that designated? Of ourselves, most of our call signs would be a lot cooler than they are. Although I can't <laughs> complain about Killer Chick. Yeah, There's right, some interesting know. ones out there. <laughs> Um, usually a call sign is based on something you've done in the airplane, something stupid you might've done. Uh, there's always the good stories to go with them. For me, I, I suppose mine's a little bit more boring than most. I was the only female, uh, fighter pilot in the A-10 squadron that I was in. And so it just, it was, it made logical sense, um, to, uh, to go with a call sign killer chick. So I'm no, I'm a, I was no part of it. I mean, yeah. we were, they kick us out of the room. They tell stories about us. And I guess there was one story where I had gone out with another pilot, and this was when I was um, being instructed in the airplane, so I wasn't fully qualified yet. And he was actually a classmate of mine from the academy, but he was a couple of years ahead of me since I had gone to um, uh, graduate school. Mm-hmm. And so he, t- he took me out and showing me some air-to-air maneuvers, and I ended up um, simu- uh, like simulated killing him uh, <laughs> in the air multiple times. And so... He was like, all right, <laughs> this is a fitting call sign for you. So 
because uh, usually the instructors kill the students and I just, I, I must've got lucky because yeah, I right. had a couple kills on him. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Sounds like Top Gun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. It's funny for A-10 pilots to talk about the air-to-air stuff, but we actually, we do practice it just in case. Yeah, awesome. Uh, you know, somebody gets through. So what was your feeling like the first, or, you know, what was the first plane you got into to fly solo by yourself and what was your, what was the feeling? So the very first time you fly in an A-10, it's it's solo. I mean, it's by yourself. There's yeah. no two-seat A-10s. I guess the only – there are two of them apparently in a museum somewhere. I haven't seen them before. But uh, the first time you fly, you're on your own. So we do a lot of simulator training before. But then um, on your actual sortie where you fly by yourself, your flight lead will just tuck in right behind you and follow you. And you can, they can tell pretty well what you're doing and, and keep you safe. But I'll tell you what, the first time I flew was pretty awesome. but the best time is actually the first the first time you shoot the gun. Yeah. So you're not really an A10 pilot until you shoot the gun because that that all that other stuff is just like the admin stuff to get you to the point where you can actually go out and shoot the gun on the A10. Which yeah. Um, so and to be honest, is that not the best sound in the entire world? That Bert, <laughs> the infamous. It is. Yeah. And we, you know, that- we can hear it in the airplane yeah, too. Yeah. I mean, when that, when you pull the trigger on an A10. Um, you know, the, the jet shakes, it vibrates. You can, mm. you can smell the gun gases, you can hear it, you know, you can see the gun gases and smoke out in front of you. And then obviously the best part is ideally when the, the bullets hit the target and we call it sparkles, you know, where you can see the sparkles. So you get the, yeah. the feedback that you did well. Yeah. It's such a cool weapon. Like it's uh, well, obviously a 30 millimeter cannon. We have a few different kinds of rounds, but yeah, the, the high explosives of incendiaries are, are the, really the uh, where you get the most feedback. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah, right. Well, I guess we'll touch on this, uh, especially about your Baghdad life as well, because I'm sure you put a few, um, you know, I, I suppose that name Killer Chick come into play because you definitely put some rounds down range, I reckon, and uh, mm. which is yeah. which is pretty cool. So is there a certain amount of hours you need to fly in the in the plane before you can you deploy? Six months of training before yep. we go to our combat squadrons. And then once we show up to our combat squadrons, it's really only a matter of a couple months before you're deemed mission ready, combat mission ready. Yep. And because I was in A-10 training when 9-11 happened, um, we moved pretty quickly. So I got to my combat squadron in January of 2002, uh, and we deployed about four months later. Afghanistan. Wow. Quick yeah, turnaround from being in the squadron. Wow. Yeah, of course. Yeah. It's like, welcome, get yeah. up and get ready to go. Yeah. That's um, a very quick which turnaround. Was, yeah. I mean, we all wanted to be a part of it. I mean, right. Exactly. It was like, it was, you know, I guess I equate it to nobody really wants to go to war, but if there is one, you want to go, be able to go and do your job. Exactly. You, you, that's what, that's what you train for. And so we were all ready to go and we were glad our squadron got chosen to go. So we did 2002 Afghanistan and then turned pretty quickly in 2003 to Iraq. So my first two years in a fighter squadron, I was deployed um, about 10 months of it. Yeah, right. <laughs> so that was, that was, I mean, it was a, a good way to start in terms of doing your craft and uh, maintaining credibility in the airplane. Yeah, thrown straight into the deep end. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So soon after <clears throat> finishing Warthog conversion and getting into the squadrons, did you feel that your training had prepared you adequately, like to jump in that soon into the deep end and be deployed? Yeah, I, I really was. I felt ready. I mean, I think we um, we train we train with the ground controllers regularly, <laughs> and so I think you know you you do it in training. It's a little different, I have to say. We didn't we didn't get shot at in Afghanistan that I knew about or that I saw, which mm-hmm. doesn't mean it didn't happen, but we couldn't see it. But in Iraq, um, it's a little different when you start 
are getting shot at because I think as much as you train for that, I don't know. It's just, it's different when it's real. I mean, mm. we, we have things like smoky Sam's where they shoot them off and you practice responding, but until it's actually real, you know, there's real bullets flying and, and guys on the ground are in trouble. I think it's just hard to, as much as we train to that, it's really hard until it yeah. actually happens. Make so I think, yes, <laughs> my training did prepare me, but I think there's just some things that they just got to happen real time. Absolutely. Exactly. So We'll get back to September 11, 2001. Obviously, that was a, the game changer for yourself and every military around the world. And a, again, it's one of those um, themes for all the guests that we've had on. It's changed everyone's life. Can you run us through the day of September 11 and w- what the thoughts were going through your head? Yeah, so I was actually asleep because we were night flying. We were doing our training for our night missions where we learn how to fly with night vision goggles. And um, so I was asleep and I remember... Uh, one of the guys from my class called and the phone just kept ringing and ringing because normally you don't want to interrupt your crew rest. Uh, and I finally picked it up because I thought, gosh, something, something is wrong. Um, and, and I remember him saying, you know, Kim, turn on the TV. And uh, so I turned it on in time and I to see the second airplane hit the World Trade Center. And I think we all just knew. I mean, there was no doubt at that point for us that we were under attack. I mean, our base went to threat con Delta, meaning it was completely shut down. Nobody yeah. could get in or out. And uh, they just called us all in uh, and uh, just to, you know, talk about what was going on. Obviously they shut down all the, the, every bit of flying. And I think at that point for us, you know, we were in September. So our training was supposed to be done in December. And all we just kept thinking was like, we need to hurry up and get done. Like we're going to war and we need to finish. Like, and at the same time, all the instructors were feeling the same pressure of like, we need to get these guys out the door because they're, they're the ones going into the combat squadrons. And so uh, we didn't fly for, for a while. Um, but it, it could put everything into perspective. Like this is exactly. Yeah, what we train for. And if something goes down, we're the type of airplane that needs to be in there. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it, it really, I think very quickly um, put things in perspective and um, kind of made it, made it real in terms of what you sign up to do. I mean, this whole idea of committing yourself to something bigger and more important, like this was it. Uh, and so we all wanted to be a part of that. Yeah, exactly. And then uh, obviously 2002, you get posted to your squadron and then straight into Afghanistan. Yeah, with a little side stop in Kuwait. Uh, yeah, we, of course, uh, yeah. We were actually still supporting Operation Southern Watch, Yep. Uh, which was for A-10 pilots a little bit boring. Uh, we were there for combat search and rescue, which is an, a, a very important mission. But for the most part, it meant that we were just flying circles in the sky. Uh, you know, you don't want somebody to get shot down. So it wasn't like we wanted to be busy. But that's really all we were doing is yeah. just providing uh, close or uh, combat search and rescue if needed. And so when the A-10 started moving into Afghanistan, uh, it was, everybody wanted to go. And we just ended up rotating pilots through uh, to, to conduct operations out of Bagram Air Base in Afghanistan. So after about a month on the ground in Kuwait, we moved into Bagram uh, in Afghanistan, which was... Uh, <laughs> That place was interesting in 2002, <laughs> we'll put it that way. I yeah. mean, it was just the Wild West. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, That I, I guess that whole period of Afghanistan from, you know, early 2000s to even, you know, 2012, 2013, it was just a just a wild place, an absolutely yeah, wild place. It really was. I mean, it, and really, we you know, a lot of the kinetic activity happened during Operation Anaconda, which was before we got there. 
And so by the time we got there, we were just doing a lot of convoy escort. Uh, we would support uh, special forces and go in at night to help them with different raids and things that they were doing. But I think out of the entire time in that first trip to Afghanistan, for me, I dropped one uh, night illumination flare to help the special forces on a raid. But it was very quiet, eerily quiet after Operation Anaconda. And I'll tell you, there was a time where we were all kind of frustrated because nobody was dropping anything. And we're just flying these combat or convoy escort missions. And we're just looking at dirt, you know, looking yeah. out at the road and staying overhead, these convoys. And I remember one day we had a... Um, we had a convoy that didn't have a ground controller and they were very nervous because they had gotten indications that there was going to be an ambush. And I was like, Hey, we're like, we're here. We got you. We're, yeah. we're overhead. Yeah. Like nobody's going to mess with you. And if they do, uh, we're right here. And so I think in that moment, it was kind of like, all right, just because we don't drop anything doesn't mean we're not doing anything mm. and just providing that support and that I guess encouragement to the guys on the ground. Like, Hey, we're here. We're yeah. not going to leave you. Yeah. Uh, so put it in perspective for me, it, it was like, a, you know, a little switch of like, Hey, remember what you're here for? It's those guys on the ground yeah. that are doing the the work. That's it. And it's just the presence of the A-10 and, um, you know, the Apaches as well. You know, you, we'd see them in Afghanistan and see them flying around. As soon as they're around, Taliban just disappear. Yeah. They're, they're out of there. And it's funny, you, yeah. see, you know, um, you know, obviously being a female pilot as well, there was this Apache pilot in uh, Afghanistan. She was Dutch, and uh, the Taliban knew that it was a female Apache pilot going around just wasting Taliban, <laughs> which was awesome. But it was like the ultimate disrespect to their culture and their religion, which was yeah. As I said, as soon as you guys turn up, it's just it's happy days. It's you can almost holiday in Afghanistan. Know, <laughs> uh, you know, women can do this stuff, and we actually do so. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It was an inter really interesting time to be in Afghanistan. I mean, at the time there were still Afghans on the base. I mean, we were living out of these, you know, tents with open bays, you know, it was like men, women, enlisted officers all together and nobody cared. Yeah. You know, nobody, it yeah. wasn't a, it wasn't a thing. Yeah. Um, and if they had tried to move me anywhere else, I would not have wanted to go anywhere yeah. else. I mean, I wanted to be around the guys in my squadron and, you know, that's where I kind of had my comfort zone with them. And, um, but it was, it was the wild West changed dramatically in you know, 2005, 2010, yeah. multiple times I had gone back. It was very different, but, um, I actually really liked it then. It was just, you know, <laughs> you really felt like you were doing what you were trained to do and yeah. there was no bureaucracy or anybody else to get in the way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, it's all politics now and far out. There's yeah, all that political correctness crap and <laughs> that, that's, that's another podcast. Um, I was actually in, uh, yeah, a completely other one. <laughs> yeah. I was in, uh, I was in actually Bagram probably about two years ago and uh, it was quite, you know, big, obviously now it's, it's gone. Like have you, I don't know if you've probably seen it on the news, uh, the pictures of Bagram at the moment. And it's just, yeah, it's, it was home to a lot of people home, home away from home. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, I don't I I don't know. It's hard to, it's hard to walk away from all that after so many people spent so much time there and so many lives were lost. And, and I just, I don't know. I wonder now what, you know, what's, what's next and what does this mean for all the time that we spent there and the, the blood, the sweat, the tears, everything that went into Afghanistan. I don't know. I certainly have hope uh, because I don't know. I guess that's all you can do at this point. Well, you could be back there in a couple of years flying A-10s. <laughs> 
Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I'm retiring in about uh, three days. So yeah, right. Um, I, uh, oh, we my, got the scoop on that, Maddie. My <laughs> official retirement date is the 1st of August. So <laughs> unless uh, unless it becomes a civilian contract job, I will be uh I will be here. Yeah, yeah, right. All right, so um, so you leave uh, Afghanistan 2002 and then obviously the invasion of uh, Iraq kicks off uh, 2003. What stage do you get the call up to head to Baghdad? About February of 2003, we started hearing, uh, you know, it, obviously January, February, there was a lot of talk about something happening in Iraq and then there was this discussion of A-10s going and which squadrons would go. Uh, and so we were all kind of just waiting to see what would happen. Uh, I was actually at, we call it uh, squadron officer school. It's our development education in Alabama. And it, my husband and I actually got to go together, which was fantastic, except about halfway through, they start pulling people out. The special operators went first and we're like, we are going to get left behind because we're at, in Alabama <laughs> at squadron officer school and our squadrons are going to leave us behind. Um, we ended up, obviously going, but, um, I got home from that training and a week later we were, we were on our way to Iraq. I got to fly an A-10 across the the pond is what we call it, Mm. uh, to get to Iraq. And, uh, you could just feel the buildup happening. I mean, some of the bases that we normally hop to along the way were completely full. And so everything was just a little bit different. And then we landed in Kuwait it was March 1st, 2003. We landed in Kuwait and I just remember, I mean, the entire ramp was full of, of A-10s and uh, Marines, uh, the F-18s were there. Just, I mean, it, there was aircraft as far as you could see, helicopters, everybody else. Uh, and you could just tell the difference. I mean, this was, we knew this was going to be big. And then we sat <laughs> for three yeah. weeks. Hurry up and uh, Doing <laughs> nothing. Yeah. Um, just waiting, waiting, waiting for something to happen. Um, and because I was so young, uh, because I was new in the airplane, I wasn't even sure I was going to fly. I wasn't sure if they just brought me over to work in our mission planning cell. Yeah. And so I was really, really hoping that I'd get the opportunity at some point. And then once the war kicked off, I mean, it was just, we had so many sorties to fly that they needed every pilot. We ended up bringing more pilots mm-hmm. over and we flew almost every day. If we weren't flying, we were sitting combat search and rescue alert, and then there would be a day in there to work in the mission planning cell. But it was it was very busy. Yeah. So what, very quickly. What, how was your uh, mental state? Obviously, Afghanistan was just a total different war. They didn't have yeah. fighter jets. There was no there was no air to air you know combat. There was no you know SAM sites or mm. you know any air. There was they had small arms and you know a couple of stingers here and there and you know just a little bit of stuff. Whereas obviously Iraq. You know, it was you were fighting an army essentially, you know, and they had all the anti-air and had everything. So it was just like, you know, what were you thinking? What was going through your mind? We got word that we were going to do, be doing close air support, close air support over downtown Baghdad, and it was like <laughs> that's uh, that's different. <laughs> that's, oh, yeah. We thought that that would be saved for you know some of the the fighters that can stay a little bit higher and, and do some other things. But you know, once we saw the plan that we were, you know moving both army and Marines, you know, from a U.S. side to Baghdad, um, we knew the risk level. We talked about it. Baghdad was surrounded by what we called uh, the super MES, the super missile engagement zone, which meant that there were surface to air weapons all over the place. And so I think we knew very quickly, we did not think that we would bring everybody home uh, or that we would bring all our jets home. 
So much so that our squadron commander made us all sit down and write letters home to like our parents or if people had kids and spouses, if we didn't make it. And you couldn't fly unless he had that letter. Now, he never opened the letter, so you could have made it blank. But um, when you sit down to write letters home to your family that you're not going to make it, it really put things in perspective. Um, And then we had regular incoming missiles into Al Jabber, into Kuwait. And so we get the alarm reds and everybody put on their chem gear and, you know, just shit would go flying everywhere because, you know, it's people were scared. I mean, it was just this new environment of like, you know, you're under attack and thankfully none of the missiles ever hit anywhere close to Jabber. But I mean, regularly throughout the night, we would just get woken up by these uh, alarm reds. So yeah. it really put things into perspective for sure. Yeah. And what age were you? Oh gosh, let's see. You're gonna make me do math. Um, <laughs> 25, 26. Yeah. So 25 yeah. and you've had to write a death letter and yeah. Fly, fly yeah. I was recently day. married, but no kids. Yeah. It was just a weird, it's, it was, it's one of those things. Uh, I kept the letters. I still have them. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you know, thank God they never had to get used. Yeah, but yeah, it really put things into perspective. Was um your husband actually over there at any of the time of your deployments? Were you there at the same time? Uh, he was overseas. Um, he was deployed with a ground unit um, as their close air support expert, so he spent time on the ground, but a uh, different location. Mm-hmm. And so we uh, we could we could talk through a classified phone here and there or, you know, through classified chat, but that was about it. So very little communication uh, until April 7th. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> after that mission, after that mission, my uh, I wanted to call him and uh, I knew he needed to hear from me. Yeah. yeah. Right. So when was your first flight over Baghdad? Your first mission? Uh, let's see. We started moving up to Baghdad, I think around early April. Um, yeah. as, you know, we, we essentially just followed the army all the way. And then if the army didn't have anything for us, we'd split off and go see the Marines and see if they had anything for us. But as, as the army moved, we moved. So as they got closer to Baghdad, we started doing uh, missions up there, which, you know, where it was fairly quiet, we didn't get a whole lot of surface to air threat. You know, we'd see occasional AAA, but once we got towards Baghdad, uh, totally changed. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Did, did, uh, did your A-10s have different loadouts from Afghanistan as in different rounds or Yes, completely. Yeah. I mean, in, in Iraq, we're talking, you know, tanks and yeah. heavy weaponry. Afghanistan's, you're talking, you know, essentially. Yeah. Uh, you know, trucks yeah. And <laughs> mud huts. And, yeah. yeah. So very different loadout uh, as well. Different weapons um, just in different tactics as well yeah. because of the threat. Yeah, right. And uh, one thing I do want to touch on was the first time you, you know, pulled the trigger. Was that in Afghanistan or was that in uh, Iraq? It was in Iraq. There you go. So, you know, can you expand on that target? Was it a fixed target? Or? I have a recollection of one mission, probably not the first, but I, I remember dropping a lot of weapons. We got up towards Baghdad and one of the ground controllers, as they were getting in Baghdad, they said, look, there is this entire like weapons cache. There's all these weapons, you know, can you drop? We, we ended up dropping bombs on some buildings and massive explosions. I mean, it was like a munitions factory or something. Um, and so, um, we shot our Maverick missiles into some tanks and vehicles. We took out some, um, they're called hikes, uh, they're transporters for weapons. 
Um, so we, we took out a lot of things and that was, that was a very memorable mission from the amount of ordnance we dropped. I mean, we pretty much came home clean, which on an A-10 is, I mean, that's a lot of weapons. We'd carry two 500 uh, pound Mark 82 bombs. We carried two Maverick missiles, usually one kind of TV and one infrared. Uh, we carried rockets, both Willie Pete to Mark, and then also high explosive rockets, uh, and then all of our gun as well, which is, um, you know, it's a lot, a lot of yeah. missions. So we, that, that mission stands out to me as one specific that I remember. Yeah. Right. I, I didn't like for, for myself, I didn't realize A-10s carried that much. I didn't realize they carried missiles and I knew they carried bombs, but I wasn't too sure about, you know, missiles and bombs and just everything, which is pretty cool. It's, it's like a, a yeah, mini and that was the old school A-10. I mean, now we carry all the, you know, the fancy stuff, GPS-guided yeah. bombs and laser-guided Laser bombs. But yeah. back then uh, in the early <laughs> days of Iraq, it was dumb bombs and uh, and, and Maverick missiles. So yeah, right. it's come a long way. So um, as far as the A-10 goes, I mean, everyone probably knows about, you know, the, what is the titanium bucket that keeps you guys uh, safe in the cockpit and that, but what's – Besides the design features, what as an A-10 pilot, what, what are some of the quirky things that only an A-10 pilot would know about the aircraft that's quite unique about that aircraft as, you know, such a specific forward air control aircraft compared to, say, other fighters? Yeah, I mean, the A-10 was specifically designed around the, the 30 millimeter Gatling gun. So mm. if you ever look at an A-10 straight on, the, the nose wheel is actually offset because the gun is the center of the airplane. And the A-10 was designed so that it could take hits while performing its mission. So you mentioned the titanium bathtub. The glass in the cockpit has some capability to withstand, you know, bulletproof. Uh, we also have all of our fuel tanks have protective foam lining in them so that if, you know, a bullet hits the, the uh, fuel tank, then it ideally will not cause a fire. And then all of our systems are redundant in some way. And mm. so hydraulics are what we use to control our airplane as with most airplanes. And so if you lose one system, the other takes over. And if you lose both system systems on the of hydraulics, then the A-10 actually has a backup emergency system called manual reversion, uh, which really allows you to fly it on like old school cranks and cables. Yeah. Uh, and so it's not something that we train for. It's not something that we practice for more than once. <laughs> Um, but, you know, the fact that it was designed for that, um, it's an impressive airplane. I mean, it really is designed to take some hits and you won't see that. I mean, an A-10 could land on, you know, we can land on a dry lake bed. We can land out on a dirt field. You're not going to see that with some of the other uh, fighters. Absolutely. Yeah, right. So prior, obviously, the 7th of April was the game changer for you. And obviously talking about that uh, manual reversion yeah, whatever whatever <laughs> that means. Um, obviously, you were one of the first people to use that in an A-10 or even out of all aircraft, I think. I don't know. Something I was reading, I don't know. I don't know what I'm talking yeah, about. So, <laughs> yeah, because we, it's just not something that we we train or practice for. And, and during Desert Storm, um, there were, you know, a lot of airplanes took damage in Desert Storm. And so there were actually three pilots that had flown in manual reversion during Desert Storm. And unfortunately, uh, we lost the first pilot that tried to land um, in manual reversion. And there was just a lot we didn't know. And uh, he unfortunately got to the runway and then the airplane cartwheeled and he was killed. The second pilot got on the ground, but along with when you lose your hydraulics, you lose brakes, you lose steering. I mean, there's just a lot of things that are abnormal. And so he swerved on and off the runway several times. The airplane was completely destroyed, but he was lucky to survive. And then there was this third situation where someone that had pretty, pretty similar damage to mine was able to make it back. So just one of those things that we just don't train for. It's, um, it's too dangerous to train for it. So it's kind of a, uh, 
last case, worst case yeah, scenario. Yeah. And yeah, I think right. we're starting to touch on that that very incident that yeah, you are famous definitely. for. Definitely. So let's uh, yeah, let's touch on the seventh of uh, April. What run us through that day? Yeah, pretty normal day to start with. I mean, we our normal mission would be at this point we would take off from Kuwait, we'd fly to Baghdad, we'd air refuel um, because it's about an hour flight time in the A10 to get to Baghdad. So we'd get gas, and then we would just wait in these stacks and the. At this point, you know the situation on the ground had gotten pretty intense, and so they just would stack up aircraft around Baghdad so that when somebody called for assistance, people were there and they could just flow them in based on where they were at. Um, the problem that day on April 7th was the weather was terrible. I mean, it was, there were clouds covering Baghdad, you know, just as far as we could see. And so I, I remember my flight leader and I talking, uh, we were worried we would even be able to find the tanker. And so we eventually got gas and, you know, it was kind of one of those missions. You're like, well, I don't think we're going to be able to do anything today. It's just the weather sucks. And um, you, we didn't, you know, if we, if we can't get below the weather, we can't help. And so, uh, we were just hanging out waiting. And then we got this call over the radio, um, from a ground controller and they said they were taking fire, needed immediate assistance. And, uh, you know, that was kind of, that's the game changer, right? They called troops in contact and it was like, okay, all bets are off at this point. We're going to go find a hole in the weather and get through. So we went right over to the target area and just hung out above the weather kind of while we gathered our information. And what had happened is uh, there was a um, an army unit that was hunkered down on the west side of the Tigris River, and Iraqi Republican Guard had, had found them and located them, and they were on the east side of the Tigris River. They were hiding under like an everyday overpass. from yeah, um, It was yeah. the North Baghdad Bridge, and they just hide out under the overpass, you know, and they were shooting rocket-propelled grenades into our guys. Uh, and so we we got the information, plotted it on our maps with paper maps at the time, uh, and uh, and then just looking for a hole in the clouds. And I remember my flight lead just I all of a sudden he was there, and then he was like, "I see a hole," and he just disappeared and he was gone. And he was like, "All right, Casey, you know, find your find a hole in the weather and dive down through." So found a hole in the clouds and just you know as fast as I could before it disappeared uh, to get down below the weather. And then once I popped out below the weather, then it was just like this surreal situation. I mean, I could, we were so low, uh, much lower than normal. And so I could see this firefight happening and yeah, right. smoke and tracers and flashes. And, you know, I just, it was hard to kind of make sense of everything that was going on and where was, where were these, you know, where was it all going? Um, it was, you know, but it was everything that we trade for. I mean, it's everything that we talk about, but until you see it in that moment, it's like, it's very surreal. Uh, and then about that time, as we're setting up to do our first guns pass, I start to see these like puffs of gray and white smoke. And now they're not near the ground. They're up next to my cockpit mm-hmm. and a couple bright flashes. And so, you know, we were like, all right, got to keep the jet moving. But at that point, I mean, we have a job to do. I mean, they've called troops in contact. We need to get in there. And so we decide we're just going to do a couple passes each. We're going to do a gun run and then uh, some rockets, a rocket pass to try to get right underneath the bridge. Um the ground controller initially had asked us to put bombs on the bridge. And you know, we just, at that point, you know, this is this downtown Baghdad and yeah. you know, we couldn't, <laughs> we couldn't put bombs right down on the bridge. We take out the bridge, which we knew, you know, we would have to use afterwards. And so yeah. we elected to try to get underneath the bridge uh, with our gun and rockets and uh, did a couple of passes. And then I set up for my last pass rocket pass and, um, did all the stuff I was supposed to do and just trying to keep my jet moving the whole time and uh, refine my aim point kind of pointed right underneath the bridge and hit the weapons release button. And those seven rockets come out 
And then at that point, it's just pull away from the ground, away from the threat, trying to get our energy back. And then I just felt this huge explosion at the back of the airplane. And I mean, I knew immediately what had happened. I mean, there was no doubt in my mind that I was hit. I'm pretty sure the first thing that I did was uh, key the mic and say, shit, two got hit, two got hit, which is not exactly the first thing you're supposed to do, but (laughs) it seemed appropriate at the time. Um, But I just remember looking down at Baghdad below and like, you know, grounds getting closer and pull back on the stick and, and nothing, like nothing happened. And it was kind of that moment of like, this is not nah. going well. Um, it took me about 20 seconds, you know, looking back to fully analyze everything that was going on. I mean, I had lights flashing everywhere. Um, and I just remember looking down at those hydraulic lights and gauges and they were at zero. I mean, the, the system was totally empty of hydraulics, totally depleted. And so at this point, uh, my options are to eject, which, you know, um, ejecting <laughs> right and and strafing the enemy, like not going to go well. Uh, yeah. So that was, I mean, it was an option. It just wasn't really an option that I wanted. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, I knew we had this backup system and, um, flip the switch and the airplane, you know, now slowly starts to climb out and away from Baghdad, but I was still having trouble climbing because we had still bombs and Mavericks on the airplane. And so emergency jettisoned all of those. Okay. And then the airplane slowly starting to climb and uh, kind of getting away from the ground. And it's kind of like, okay, I think, I think I might make it out alive on this one. If I can just get out of Baghdad. Yeah. Have you lost an engine Um, at this point or just the hydraulics? Thank God, just the hydraulics. I mean, if I had lost an engine, I I don't know if I would have been able to recover the airplane. Mm -hmm. Um, My engine took significant shrapnel damage Mm -hmm. um, because what had happened is a missile came in at the back part of the airplane and it sent shrapnel through the the fuselage, the tail, and then the engine. Um, And so, I don't know, lucky or unlucky hit on their part. But uh, yeah, lost the hydraulics, but not the engine. Um, But still really struggling with the airplane to fly it. So Manual reversion is like, um, it's hard to equate what it's like, but I, I think if you um, have ever driven without power steering, you kind of get the feel like it's a yeah. little bit harder to do. I don't know that I've driven a car without power steering, but I, I kind of get the idea of it. And then, mm. but it's more like a dump truck without power steering. Like yeah, it's, gotcha. it is not maneuverable. Slow and docile um, and heavy in the controls as well, I guess. Yeah, very heavy on the controls. And um, if I let go of the stick, the airplane just wanted to roll. Like it would just roll on its own. And so it was really tough flying the airplane. Um, And then about, you know, about, uh, you know, a few minutes, we kind of go by and we're trying to just gather our thoughts and figure out what the hell just happened. Trying to get above the weather, because at this point, we think if they can't see us they're uh, it's more unlikely that, you know, they're not going to shoot at us at this point. And so we get above the weather. My flight lead rejoins with me. And at this point, he is going to do a look over of my airplane to just tell me what had happened because I couldn't tell, I couldn't see anything. And so he does what we call a battle damage check and look over the airplane. And he's like, Casey, you have hundreds of holes. It turned out to be over 600. Wow. section, And then that hole about the size of a football and that back horizontal stabilizer, which is the tail section of the airplane. And then at that point, it's kind of like, okay, now we got to figure out what's next. So like we, we made it out of Baghdad, but what's next and our flight time home. Uh, and I've got to decide if I'm going to try to land it or if I'm just going to get it back to friendly territory and eject. So it's an hour RTB, is it? You've, you've got an hour of a, a leg to get back home and try and baby this. Yeah. Thing. An hour. Um, 
an hour and a whole lot of time to think way yeah. too much time. To think. <laughs> uh, Shit. Um, I think we could have landed at, at the time um, we had the, the U S had gone into Talil air base um, <laughs> near Al Nazaria. We could have landed there, but we had a thought that um, they didn't have a hospital. They didn't have a, I think mm. they had a fire truck, but they didn't really have like an ambulance or a yeah. crash recovery team. And so if I was going to crash on landing, these are all the awesome things we talked about. Yeah. Um, if I was going to crash on landing, then I would, I would obviously need that. Um, and so we decided to push all the way through to Kuwait because I had plenty of gas at that point. The airplane was flying. And so we just decided to get as far as we could. Yeah. yeah. So you've got the uh, thought in the back of your head, you've got all these facilities to help you out if you can get back to base. But how was that hour? Was it pretty tense? Were you working the whole time? Are you just thinking, how's the aircraft performing? What's the process across an hour of transit back to base? Yeah, it was a long, it was a long hour. Mm. Um, it was a long hour from a, you know, physically it was exhausting to fly the airplane back. I, you know, thankfully I remember that like, uh, pilots guys had come into the squadron and talked about their experiences during desert storm. And so I remembered a few of them coming in and sharing their stories about a few of them had flown in manual reversion and they were saying like, look, uh, it's hard. And so, you know, take, you know, take your time and, fly with one hand on the stick or the other hand or both hands. So you don't get so exhausted flying back. Mm. And so that, that stuck with me, um, you know, from a physical exhaustion standpoint, I think probably the hardest thing was the mental exhaustion of just trying not to think about like, am I going to crash? Am I going to die? Is the airplane, you know, going to make it back? I think at some point you just, you got to compartmentalize that stuff Mm. and push it out of your mind and just really focus on the task. And so we did, I don't know, probably emergency checklists over and over again. We just run through the checklist and then like 30 minutes later, we'd run through it again. And I think part of that was just kind of staying in the game and keeping, you know, my mind alert and just constantly thinking about how the airplane is flying and how things are going. Um, But there was a lot that we had to do in terms of getting back and the gear weren't going to come down normally. I mean, all these things that normally work were not not working. And so we went through a lot of checklists to make sure everything was going to work like it's supposed to. Too. Yeah, and then so it kept me busy. Busy. Yeah, yeah. Certainly. So you the airstrip in in sight, and then you know, I, I suppose you were there would have been a bit of a you know a relieved feeling, but you still have to land the thing. Well, you know, yeah, it was like this, a relief. You're right. It was a relief because it's like okay, I'm at least in friendly territory. Yeah. If I eject now, you're good. The rescue helicopters are on alert. They're right yeah. there. They're going to come get me. Like I, I knew that, and that was you know very reassuring. But I, you know, I. I also felt pretty confident at this point after flying the airplane for an hour that I could land it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, just kind of came in for a final approach. Um, the, uh, the tower controllers, everybody was, you know, everybody was alert. This was no surprise that I was coming in with battle damage. I mean, the word had gotten out and uh, I remember coming in for that final approach and crossing the landing threshold, you know, just the edge of the runway there, this airplane, it just started this quick roll. And it was like that, that heartbeat moment of like, it's going to flip over on its back and I'm not even going to have time to eject. And then, you know, just quickly yank the stick back and thankfully the airplane leveled out. Um, and then it was a full on power, like carrier hard landing is the way <laughs> they tell you to land smack it. it down. <laughs> uh, but it, yeah, it was a landing and, uh, I was safe on the ground. And so it was, uh, yeah, it was, uh, I don't know. Relief is not even the right word yeah, uh, no. or the feeling of back and friendly territory. I think the coolest part for me 
was all the guys from my squadron, when they heard that I was coming back, you know, some of them were in the tower, some of them were in their jets waiting to launch. And like, as soon as I landed, like all radio etiquette was out the window. It was just like, you know, (laughs) everybody's like, nice job, Casey, welcome home. It was just, it was really cool. That's awesome. Um, Yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. And then to see, you know, I hopped out of the jet and see like people were lined up on the runway, you know, kind of watching and waiting to see what was happening, what was going to happen. So it was pretty cool once I was on the ground. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, back, yeah. back safe. <laughs> yeah, right. So there's obviously the infamous uh, image of you uh, inspecting your airplane. Uh, it looks like a couple of days later or maybe that day. I'm not too sure. But, um, you know, when you looked at it the first time, what were you thinking? It's like the well, Actually, I looked at it for the first time. I got out of the airplane on the runway because I couldn't taxi it. I mean, I just had to oh, stop yeah. on the runway. And so uh, – it was actually a group of Marines, young Marines who were the fire firefighter crew. And I remember hopping out of the airplane and they're looking at me and then they're like looking at this airplane, like what the hell just <laughs> happened? And that was exact. That was about what I was thinking too. Cause I just, I mean, it was dripping with hydraulic fluid. Um, I mean, holes everywhere, holes that I did not know about, like towards the front of the airplane on the wings, the engine, um, and of course, then this, you know, giant hole in the back. And then, there was a fire on the back of the airplane. The whole back of the airplane was charred um, and you could actually push on it. And it was soft. I mean, so it was just, uh, it was amazing to see the damage and then just think about how much damage that airplane took and still kept flying. Yeah. Cause of course you can't see any of that from the cockpit. It's all behind you and you're in this yeah. tiny little box up the front end. So I couldn't see anything. I mean, we do have mirrors in the cockpit yeah. to kind of look at our six o'clock, but I, you know, I couldn't see any of it. I had yeah. no idea. I had no idea. And, um, my flight weight on the way back, he'd asked me, you know, how's your engine doing and how are things going? He told me on the way back, he wouldn't, he didn't want to tell me that there were pieces coming out of my engine. There were pieces of the airplane coming off. And he just thought, you know what? It's just better at this point. I, there's only so much one person can handle. He's yeah. like, I'm just going to keep this part quiet. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah right. What was the damage from? Was it a, a gun or any air gun? Yeah, you find it was a surface air missile. It was a missile. It was a missile that impacted. Um, they did some assessment. Um, unfortunately, the team couldn't come. You know, the, the Intel team that normally does the full-on assessment at the time, they weren't allowing anybody into theater unless they were boots on the ground uh, operators. And so... They weren't able to come into theater, but they did an assessment and said, that, you know, definitely a, a large missile impact and then sending the shrapnel through the, the rest of the aircraft. Yeah, right. And um, so post uh, 7th of April, were you back up flying again? Or was that just like, you know what, that's, that's enough for me? I was actually in the air the next day, <laughs> uh, which is probably the best thing to happen because yeah. it was just good to get back in the airplane. I think, you know, your mind can get going and wandering and I kind of just healthy or not, I really just compartmentalized that mission and was like, all right, I'm going to want to deal with that one later when I get home. Um, but I, uh, I flew the next day and I was actually on combat search and rescue alert, which I think my flight lead purposely scheduled that. Yeah. Thought, all right, we're just going to relax. We're going <laughs> to take a nap. Cause that's usually what happens. You sit on, you have, there's a little shack near the runway and you sleep, you, you know, people read, watch or play video games, whatever, watch movies. And then the alarm sounded. Like the the real not not the practice alarm, but yeah. the real alarm. And a pilot, a ten pilot, had been shot down in Baghdad. And so we just, you know, we bolted up and ran out to the jets as fast as we could. You know, put on all our gear, hopped in the airplanes, and it was just like go as fast as we can. And I didn't I didn't 
really have time to think about it. I know, you know, I think for me, you know, I knew those guys were there for me the day before. And so I was going to do everything for this pilot on the ground, just like I knew they would have done for me. Mm. Uh, and so we didn't have time to think about it when we were just gathering information, you know, where was the pilot? What had shot him down? You know, how long had he been on the ground? All those things that were trying to gather this picture. Um, we made it about 30 minutes into Iraq and, and the, uh, um, the air controllers told us, Hey, you can turn around. And my flight leader was like, hell no, we're not turning around. I mean, there's an A-10 pilot on the ground, you know, mm. he's like, uh, say again, you know, we're not turning around. So we just kind of ignored them. Of course there's radar and they can see us, you know, not turning around. And so they finally get the clue. They're going to have to tell us a little bit more. And so they say, Hey, he was, the pilot was picked up by ground forces. Yeah, nice. So he's safe. You can turn around. Yeah, so, fair enough. An yeah, ideal so mission. Probably the, the best of- way to get back in the air, yeah. you know, just get back in and, and just uh, get back to the mission. I mean, there's still war going on. We were still exactly. flying missions. So we stayed, that was April. We stayed through July. So mm. I flew plenty of more missions after that. And did that uh, particular A-10 that you flew um, return to service or any idea what happened to it? It's in your backyard? I, sadly, no. no? Uh, they, uh, they tried, they sent a team over to fix it. And uh, there were just too many holes in the airplane. Um, when they started repairing them, they could tell that the weight and bounce was going to be a problem with the repairs. And uh, at the time, we were also packing up at, out of Jabber and moving into Iraq to move into a base there. There just wasn't enough time to fix it. So instead, uh, maintenance took the whole thing apart and took every single part that they could off of it to use as spare parts for the other airplanes. Um, and then, uh, I have a little, a few pieces. I was yeah, going to say that over your right shoulder. Is that one of the panels from it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I thought so. Yeah. That's the, behind me is the, the tail section of the, the airplane. That's so they awesome. gave me a little cut out of the, uh, FT for flying tigers and the nine, eight, seven is the tail number. So that's awesome. Been dying to ask you about that. that. Haven't seen it over yeah. your shoulder the whole time. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. It's pretty cool. I also have this, the stick, uh, they gave me that later as well. The maintenance guys got that nice. for me. Um, so it's pretty cool that that piece of the tail there is actually, um, it's getting ready to go into the Smithsonian in Washington, DC. Wow. They're going to do a new exhibit on modern, uh, aviation. And so, uh, it will find its way there. So I'm pretty attached to it, but I think, you know, the more people to see it, that see yeah. it, the better. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's awesome. And also for your efforts, um, on that day, you've got the distinguished flying, flying cross, correct? Yep. Yeah, yeah, I wow. did. It was that was a surprise. I mean, I, I didn't, I didn't know that was going to happen. I think, I think for us, it's like, that's our job, right? That's what we yeah. do. Um, yeah. You know, I, I get that flying back in manual reversion and landing was uh, not something that many people do, but um, you know, I, the, the support that we gave the guys on the ground, I think any A-10 pilot out there would do that. And, you know, I don't know, a little bit of luck got me back safe. I, I'll tell you the, the best recognition that we get as a 10 pilots is just thanks you know thanks yeah. from the guys on the ground and i have a i have a note from the guys there that uh that day and another day you know they um they came by and left me a note and said thanks for saving our ass over baghdad <laughs> yeah. like that's what's cool right yeah. like that's yeah. what really matters so i mean i i'm honored to receive the distinguished flying cross don't get me wrong but it's um the recognition of just doing your job i think from the people that you do it for is what really matters. Very true. Yeah, right. So um so you get back to the US um and then you just do a few more do you do a few more trips back to Afghanistan and in and out of Yeah, Afghanistan after that. That so that was that was my only Iraq uh deployment and the rest of the time was uh, multiple uh trips back to Afghanistan and um you know just a very very different 
uh, yeah, yeah, environment compared to yeah. Iraq. Yeah, definitely. And then um, when did you stop flying? When did you call it quits? I stopped flying. My final flight in the A-10 was in 2018 when I came oh, to the Air Force Academy. Yep. So I got to fly as a colonel, which was great because not all colonels in the Air Force get to fly. Yeah. <laughs> I, was a group, I was a group commander responsible for about 1,500 people um, in uh, South America, Central America, and the Caribbean. Um, but I was stationed at Davis Monthan in Arizona, which is home of the A-10. So I got to fly when I was there. And the best part was I got to teach uh, new A-10 pilots how to fly. Yeah, And so that was really cool for me. Again, kind of coming full circle, mm. going out on missions. Uh, I, I would fly their one sortie where they get to fly in manual reversion. So they get to see how it is. Oh, the subject that. matter expert itself. <laughs> yeah. Might as well, right? Yeah. Might as well use it. Um, and then I think, you know, most importantly for me was really teaching um, not just the wingman, but the flight lead, like how in that moment are you going to respond? Like, you know, walking people through it, how to be a good flight lead, how to be a good wingman. Because for me, like my flight lead was awesome that day. I mean, I, I had my hands full with that airplane. I mean, that was yeah. just, it was a struggle and all I could focus on was flying. And he was like the other, you know, the other airplane there that was like, Hey, you got to continue to put out chaff and flare so they don't shoot at you again. And he kept telling me to get over to the West side of the river, because he was thinking like, if I had to eject, at least I ideally would float down in my parachute on the friendly side, you know, where the friendlies were. I just, I did not have brain bites for that stuff. Mm. And so the support that he gave me in that moment, I think it was something really um, important that I think all A-10 pilots need to think about because you never know when that, that moment is going to happen. And so I was happy to be able to go back and training and, and give people some combat experience to think yeah, about, definitely. you know, so it's not just a sterile environment. Yeah. Right. And, and you know, when you walk around a base, do people go, there she is, there's the killer chick. <laughs> <laughs> there's the badass. It's, it's funny. <laughs> I've had a lot of people stop me and they're like, you, I know you. Yeah. And, uh, the air force, uh, I think it's called armed forces network that the, um, the, it's a, they basically produce all the overseas television. Yep. And I've had people say, I grew up with you in my living room. Like these are kids that <laughs> saw these commercials about me over and yeah, over. Yeah. And so, yeah, people, it's like, people know me just from that. Um, it's, it's been, a, it's been fun uh, yeah. to, to share and to have that experience. So that's cool. That's cool. So we've been talking for a good hour and it's been absolutely incredible. And um, we will start wrapping it up. So Jenna, we've got two final questions that we ask our guests. Our first question is, uh, you know, what advice can you give to people to complete their goals or, you know, complete their dreams? And, you know, you've got that ultimate like zero limit mindset and, you know, to get almost shot down over Baghdad, you, you, you had the decision to either eject if you had to, but you didn't, you decided to fight that plane and take it back and land it. Even then you could have ejected over the airbase on the friendly side of things, but you didn't, you thought, bugger it, I'm going to land this. I'm going to, I'm going to kill it, which you did. So what advice can you give to people who just never quit? You're never really unlikely that you're ever going to get it exactly right the first time. And I think, you know, getting used to the idea that you're going to make mistakes at some point, you're going to fail. Uh, you know, can you in that moment get up and dust yourself off? Can you be prepared for those really difficult situations? Uh, and so if people are going after something that they want, you know, it's, you're, you're likely to face rejection. You're going to face those failures along the way. And it's just not quitting. I mean, it's, if it's really something so important that matters to you, then you don't quit. You don't give up on exactly. it and you just keep working hard. Um, you know, I think for me, it was all about those 
those mistakes, those failures, those really difficult challenges and moments really made me the person that I am today. I think it made me the leader that I am today. Um, and like me, you know, help me be the mom and the wife that I am today. You know, all of those trials and tribulations, um, you know, none of it came easy. And so it's just about, you know, when that happens, get up, dust yourself off, give it another go. Um, and, you know, don't, ex- don't put so much pressure on yourself to get it right the first time. Yeah, ex- exactly. And as you said, you know, you, you failed the first time you were trying to join the Air Force and you end up getting in, which is, you know, one of those things you just never quit, just keep, keep going. Absolutely. And, you know, it's, I sit here and say that it's, it's easier said than done. I mean, it's like, even in my life now, I still have to remind myself of this, you know, it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to have these failures. And the important thing is that you learn from them. Uh, And that's really the important thing, but it's not easy. I mean, I, 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 these are things that I say, but I have to reinforce and remind myself. And then I teach my kids, you know, I'm (laughs) in the process of that with them now, whether it's sports or school, you know, you name it. Exactly. How, how old? How old are your kids? Uh, they're eight. Are they boys? Two boys. Two boys. Do they? Yeah. Do they know how badass their mum is? <laughs> you know, um, my older son at one point googled me and was like, "Mom, You're a there's all this stuff on Google about you." And uh, first, I had to ask him. I was like, "Well, you know, I, the, the Prime Minister of Canada has a, the former Prime Minister of Canada. There is a Kim Campbell, uh, uh-huh. but the if you Google Kim Campbell eight ten, like all this yeah. stuff came up in oh, videos." Yeah and stories. And he's like, mom, we need to talk. <laughs> you know, we need to have a conversation. But yes. I'm kind of a big you know, deal. Son. <laughs> yeah, we're still their parents. We're probably, you know, we're not that cool. Yeah. Actually. <laughs> yeah. Oh, t- yeah. It's pretty cool. Imagine having a mom like that. That's just hectic. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> they occasionally get it. They occasionally, uh, we took them out to the, on my last flight in the A-10, we took them out so they could sit in the airplane and we let them fly the simulator and they got to shoot the gun in the simulator. So mm. that part was cool. Like we, we got, you know, we got bonus points for that. Yeah. Gosh. Awesome. And, uh, our second, uh, well, second question, the last question is, you know, what's the plans for the future? So I know you're retiring in the next couple of days, three days. Um, is it, what, what's going on? Big party, uh, holiday, <laughs> vacation. What, what's the plans? Alpha strike the yeah, cannon cells. Yeah, that <laughs> has been the biggest thing. I mean, my husband is, my husband and I have been active duty for, for me, it's 24 years. And for him, it was 25 years. And so that's a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we have decided to just, uh, take control of our own schedule and our own life. Yeah, and, and, uh, so yeah, well lots of makeup time for, not just our time in the military, but also, you know, with COVID, you know, trying yeah. to get back into normal, normal life with vacations and things. So yes, there is all that good stuff and we'll plan to do that. But uh, I've been doing um, some speaking and it's finally picking back up again in person, which is great because it's really nice to connect with people and talk mm-hmm. to them and share the story. Um, so that I'll do, I'll continue to do some public speaking and then I'm working on a book as well and hope to get that out early next year. Um that is uh, that is this story and, and many other stories from my time in service, from everything from kind of the, the struggles of getting into the Air Force Academy yeah. to, to leading 1500 people. So it's, uh, it is my story, but it's leadership. Yeah, right. Sounds That's fantastic. Awesome. All right. Well, um, well, if people want to get in contact with you, you know, just to hit you up for a question and, you know, especially there's, you know, a, a lot of young people out there, especially females that, you know, are looking to join the Air Force or, you know, whatever. You know, how, how can they get in contact with you? Uh, best way would be to reach me on LinkedIn. It's Kim Casey, the initials, Casey uh, Campbell. 
on LinkedIn. Um, also uh, via email, it's kim.campbell987, yep. my tail number, yeah. at uh, <laughs> gmail.com. Um, but yeah, I, I, um, I'm happy to chat with people and, uh, and share. I think for me, I realize how much um, other people's stories and, and mentorship has helped me. So I'm always, um, I'm always happy to do that. That's important to me. Exactly. Uh, and then certainly for speaking, um, I'm part of Athena's Voice, uh, which is a, a group of uh, women uh, speakers, um, most of us fighter pilots cool. uh, that share, share stories and lessons learned from our experiences as well. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, again, thanks for getting back to us and coming on. You're an absolute badass. Like there's no, no other way <laughs> oh, to put thank it. thank you. <laughs> yeah. Like it's just, it's so cool. Thank As you. I said, you're our first uh, female on podcast and we were looking for someone that was just next level and you're it, which is awesome. And I'm, I'm inspired. Like you've, you've, uh, yeah, your story's incredible. Cause I've, you know, I've, again, like I've been to Baghdad and spent the last few years in Baghdad and I st- still see the remnants of, you know, kind of what you guys did. So it's, um, yeah. you know, it's, uh, it's, it's incredible. Yeah. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much for having the time to talk to us. Yeah, absolutely. No, awesome. All right. Well, uh, thanks for coming on. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for the invite. I appreciate it. Thanks. Bye. So mate, how, how was that? Oh, extremely insightful for, um, oh, she's a very unique person to have done that. Um, especially a warrior from April, uh, what, 2003. Yeah. Um, really insightful to talk to a warthog pilot who's been operational, you know, and use the aircraft and that platform in such an amazing way. Um, yeah. Let alone her story of survival. Her story is just hectic. Like obviously not just, you know, being a female pilot is extraordinary. Like, and then, you know, going to Baghdad or, you know, serving in Afghanistan, then going to Iraq especially Baghdad during the invasion and, you know, doing a few runs and then copping, you know, some anti-air. And this straight off the back of what I think she said, uh, 9-11 while she was on a Warthog course, A-10 course, and then three months in a squadron before you're actually being shipped overseas. What a quick turnaround, baptism by fire, straight in the deep end. Straight into the deep end. And, um, you know, she got the DFC for that, the Distinguished uh, Flying Cross, which is uh, pretty cool. And uh, she's an absolute badass, isn't you know, you know Undeniably. I mean? like, like, <laughs> and a kid should, should realise those boys have to know that their mother is one hell of a mean. Exactly. You know, you know imagine being a 12-year-old boy and going, my mum is an absolute yeah. fucking weapon. <laughs> just, Undeniably. Yeah, just flew off Baghdad, just, just you know, smashing the, the, the army, you know, because they were pricks at that stage and they still are pricks. Yeah. But that's that's another podcast. <laughs> it's always another I'll podcast. Those pricks. Um, but man, uh, yeah, I was pumped pumped for that one, and uh, glad to have you on board for it because you know you being Air Force, you you understand her gibberish, and yeah, because I don't understand how <laughs> hydraulic and like hydraulics isn't that what's in a you know excavator? <laughs> that's all right, Maddie. I'll tell you over a beer or two. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've got no idea when it comes to that stuff, and yeah, hectic story. Yeah, what a um, career, and um. Coming up on retirement, so how good to still catch her while she's, uh, you know, still in this is three days out from retirement. But um, yeah, we got it just before she's um, going yeah. in City Street. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So if you want to get in contact with Kim, you can either, as she said, you can hit her up on uh, LinkedIn or her email address that she uh, said as well. So, you know, especially for young females out there that want to, you know, maybe join the Air Force, even the Australian Air Force, mm. you know, get in contact with her. I'm, I'm sure she'll be happy to, you know, speak to anyone. In yeah, and she to- mentioned about how big our mentorship is. And, I mean, if you can reach out to someone like that, what, what better mentor could you kind of call oh, on? So, and she sounded really open and inviting to it. So um, anyone who's interested should really look her up on that. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, if you want to get in uh, to have a listen to our podcast, any previous podcasts, as well, you can head to um, www.zerolimitspodcast.com. You can jump on there. Otherwise, do a search on uh, 
um, Instagram and Facebook, Zero Limits Podcast. Otherwise, again, you can go on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, all those ones, and just type in uh, our name and all these uh, podcasts will pop up. And yeah, we'll and you see. Can get inspired. <laughs> yeah, you can get inspired. Yeah, we'll, we'll wait for the next one. Maybe Shane will be back. We don't know. If not, Tien will, uh, he's going to be our, I guess, our ringing. Um, <laughs> More than happy, mate. It's been an which, is, pleasure. which is awesome because, you know. Up on my podcast, Cherry. <laughs> exactly. And it's a, another veteran, which is uh, always, you know, we're out to support veterans. That's, that's the whole point of this podcast. So anyway, guys, let's uh, see you next time. Ciao. Wait, wait, wait. Now, quickly, just before you go, I want to tell you about Three Zeros Coffee. Now, as you know, I like my coffee how I like my men, long and black. <laughs> However, lately, I've moved into the cold brews. I'm loving it, obviously, because the weather here in Australia at the moment is quite hot. So what I've been doing is using the seasoned campaigner pour-over filter bags, literally rip open the packet, put the filter bag over my coffee mug, few ice cubes, pour in some hot water, let it cool down, add a sugar or two just to make it sweet, and I fucking love them. Honestly, you get the kick that you need out of the caffeine, and the taste is great. So if you want to get yourself a supply of coffee, head over to 30scoffee.com.au. From there, you can choose whatever you want. You've got the beans, you've got the pour-over filter bags, got some merchandise, and just to let you know that a percentage of their sales is – forwarded to organizations that support first responders. So while you're getting your coffee, you're doing a good deed by getting some of this money to the first responders and where it needs to go. While you're there, don't forget to use the discount code 3ZLIMITS. Now look in our bio, you see that discount code, use it, get your discounts. So again, jump onto 30scoffee.com.au and grab yourself a supply.